you never know what talents that you get to, to uh, use uh, in, in service of, uh, of the Lord. So that was the first in my time as a preacher, and I thought he did a good job. We're uh, talking about uh, people of hope. Uh, we're talking about the same ones that are being spoken about uh, in the classes, in the various places. So we're talking about uh, Jonah tonight. <clears throat> I wanted to kind of share a few fun facts with you as you're getting your sheets of paper. Uh, if you are wanting to take notes tonight, please feel free to do so. Um, the first has to do with the category of prophet that Jonah is. Right, He is one of 13 that we refer to as minor prophets. Why do we call them minor prophets? What's the significance of that? Okay, so it deals with the length of the material, right? Um, another thing for us to keep in mind is that God is a God who reveals. God has never left us to grope in the dark. Now, he has... We would... We would describe what God does through time as progressive revelation. Now, there are people who believe that there's still progressive revelation. When the Bible was completed, that was the end of God's written revelation, His messages to us. Uh, but there was progressive revelation throughout biblical times. And when you look at the bulk of the Old Testament, you, you think about how, how did God at first start communicating to humanity? By the way, we're kind of basing out of Hebrews. Jonah's not going to make an appearance in Hebrews. I just want to spoiler alert. But how does the, the epistle begin? How did God first begin revealing himself to humanity? Went straight to the man, the patriarchal age, right? God spoke to the heads of the households. And so he's revealing his will. He is dispensing truth to Abraham. It was a truth, it was a, a task, a responsibility that was unique to him. Noah was a patriarch. God gave him a spe specific task for his day and his time. It was oral. He's speaking straight to them. He's confirming it. God never leaves his word without the confirmation of its source. You get to Moses, and of course, now we know Moses writes the first five books of the Old Testament. So he, he steps back through the uh, Spirit of God and gives us everything from the beginning all the way through his lifetime. And uh, uh, the book of Deuteronomy records, of course, his death near the end of that book. Now, when you think about the classification of writers in the Old Testament, or uh, the class of teachers, if you will, there's five. I don't know, we can say it a lot of different ways. But how did God reveal him? What, what was God's method of revelation in the Old Testament? Through whom did he speak? How did he speak? Once the law of Moses came. Okay, that's one of the classes, the prophets, of which Jonah is one. How did he start? What's first? What's at the top of that list? We talked about him last night. Moses. He's the lawgiver. All right, so one of the classes of revelation is the dispensing of law, which God does through Moses. A second class are the, we could call them the wise men. They are the dispensers of proverbial truth. They're the, the wisdom literature that you read in the Old Testament. So who's, who's at the top of that list? Solomon. All right? And so there are books. Job has, it's a book of poetry, but it has um, proverbial wisdom. 
It's teaching us about who God is, the role that Satan plays, the, the fact of suffering in our lives and what suffering can do in our lives, which you also have, of course, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and the Song of Solomon. Another class of teacher were the priests. Okay, so the priests had two duties. They were offering up, they were leading the worship, but they were also explaining and teaching uh, the law and the will of God. So you think about, that's all the way through Old Testament times. You get way on past, if you read the Lehman Learner, we're reading about Ezra right now. Ezra's a priest. He is one of the handlers of the Word of God and is teaching what it's, it's all about. And then you have the prophets. These are those who are given, are the mouthpieces, the messengers of God, who are explaining the will of God, uh, working through Revelation. God has a lot of interesting ways. When Hebrews 1.1 1, 1 says, in all these different ways, in all these different times, uh, we think of Balaam and the donkey, but there are some incredible... Think about being Ezekiel and some of the things God told him to do. Or Jeremiah or Zechariah or Amos in the, in the, in the summer fruit. You know, all these different ways that God's communicating his message. But then you also have the poets. Now, when we think of poetry, we might think of a little ditty that has some witticism as a good illustration. But when you go to the book of Psalms, you have all kind of... Um, truth being conveyed in the different types of psalms. There's several different categories of psalms. And so as we get to a book like Jonah, Jonah belongs to the prophets. It's one of the ways that God reveals. But I find it very interesting that there are some things that are unique in Jonah of all the writings of the Old Testament. Several things that make Jonah unique among the prophets. What's unique in the book of Jonah. Okay. Alright, so um, he rebelled. That that kind of sends us to the purpose of the book. Okay, alright, that's one of them. Hold on to that one just for a minute, Harold. Um, this is the only book where the prophecy is against the prophet and is not by the prophet. The book of Jonah is an oracle against Jonah, not against even the heathen. You know, it's Jonah and, of course, the nation he represents. And then everybody else are, are pagans. They're, they're Gentiles. And I want you to notice, if you, if you go back and study Jonah, the light that God casts, the sailors and the Ninevites, the, the light he casts them in. So that's a uniqueness. This is an oracle against the prophet and not one where the prophet makes an oracle. Now, in this, we'll talk about the, the basic outline. How I many of you have heard an outline for Jonah, haven't you? Four chapters. It divides up really easily. And uh, um, I, as one, I, I was telling Kathy the other day, our, our youngest son turns 23 next month. And so, of course, I know the birthdays of all my boys, but I told Kathy that um, I know how long I've been running, a, a regular runner, you know, going out and running. And, and I started in May before he was born in August. So I've been running for over 23, I'm in my 24th year now. Jonah's the running prophet, right? How many of you heard that outline of Jonah? All right, what's the outline? What's chapter one? He runs from God. He runs away from God. You can break down the chapter real easily. He, he receives a call and he runs. Uh, a storm hits the ship. And he is in the fish. That's chapter 1. All right? So chapter 2. He's, he runs from God or away from God. What's chapter 2? He runs to God. All right? 
And, and by the way, some others have put it this way. Chapter 1 is also uh, designated as, I won't obey. Chapter 2, running to God, is, I will obey. He prays in the fish, and the fish lets him go. All right, that's where uh, Jared and David left us off there in our study. All right, what's chapter 3? Okay, I, I obey is, if you're following that outline, in the running uh, vein, what is he doing? He's running with God. All right, so we have him running away from God. We'll talk more about that. We have him running to God. He needs God in this desperate situation. And now he is running with God side by side. They're, they're tracking together. Okay, I obey. That's how you would look at that chapter. And in chapter uh, 3, you have Jonah goes to Nineveh. Nineveh repents. And God forgives. That's chapter 3. All right, and then what's chapter 4? All right, running ahead of God. Why, do we, why would we say running ahead of God? Because here's what happens. He goes and he sits under the gourd, and you can almost imagine this didn't happen. He had popcorn in his hand. He's ready to just watch the destruction, the show that God's going to throw on the Ninevites. God doesn't do that. What does God do? He relents. He spares them. How does Jonah respond? He's irritated. He's angry. He's angry at God. And he's hot. God uh, sends him a gourd. And it shades him. It covers him. And then what happens to the gourd? God causes it to go away. What, is, what happens next? He's angry. Yeah, let me die. Let me, he's a, Jonah, Jonah's a resilient guy. He wants to die so many different ways. And God's not going to let him die. He, he needs to see all of this, right? How's that running ahead of God? Who's Nineveh? All right. All right. They are the enemy of Israel. They are going to be God's instrument because Nineveh is the capital of Assyria, this burgeoning, this growing empire. They're going to reach full force. They're going to come into Israel in 722 B.C. You can read about it in 2 Kings chapter 17, and they're going to obliterate. They're going to destroy them. And we're going to talk about the cruelty of the Assyrians. And in the midst of that, not only do they do that, they're also taking care of, of enemy nations all around uh, Israel, And they go to the doorstep of Judah, which is the southern kingdom, the rest of what was the originally the twelve tribes of Israel, and they are intent on destroying Judah, if not for righteous Hezekiah. God causes uh, the uh, army of the Assyrians, 186,000 of them, to die. We would guess maybe a plague, maybe a miraculous, God just kills them all. And so they have to retreat, or the king retreats, to his capital city where he's assassinated. And that's the end of the threat. But he's running ahead of God because there's another book in the Minor Prophets that's going to also be addressed, or at least the subject, the, the central idea is Assyria. Who wrote that book? We used to do little flip cards with the boys that, that we made up. And... Um, and the one we had for Nahum is the prophet, prophet of comfort. Nahum is, is for, for the people of God, is a very comforting book. But who is it not comforting for? Assyria. You know what he says to them? What, Nahum gets to have the message that Jonah wanted to preach. And you, you appreciate this. Sometimes there's assignments handed out and you go, I'd I would love to preach that sermon. And they say, nope, sorry. Maybe you think this is my sermon. I know this sermon inside and out. And they let somebody else preach it. 
And then, you, and then on top of it all, you, you get to preach the opposite of what you want to preach. That's Jonah. Jonah wants Nahum's message, but he has a completely different one. He's ahead of God by over a hundred years. Because the Assyrians are going to correct course for a while, and then they're finally going to, uh, in their wickedness, be destroyed. Okay, so... Um, this is mainly an oracle that's against, that is against the prophet. Number two, um, I'll go ahead and deal with uh, heralds there. It's the only minor prophet whose material is directed at um, exclusively, because Nahum deals with God's people some, with the foreign people. And it's the only one that takes place entirely on foreign soil, the, the, the events that are written in it. Another thing is, is that uh, Jonah is the only book where miracles play a prominent part in the prophecies themselves. Now, the other prophets may be talking about incredible events, but there are four miracles in the book of Jonah. What are the four miracles? What would you think are the four miracles? Okay, that, that's the third, in, in the order of the book, that's the third one. And you don't have to, but I'm just telling you, if you want to mark a number by it, that's the third one. What's the first one? The storm. God brings that storm. Now, we're going to talk about the fact this is not a place where the storms couldn't happen. On the Mediterranean, Paul on the missionary journeys hundreds of years later is uh, going to be out there in a nor'easter is going to come up. They call the Euryclidon, and it's going to drive their ship to uh, the island of Malta. Uh, so they happened out there, but God brings this storm. He, he, he causes, he prepares that storm because of what Jonah's done. All right, that's the first one. What's the second miracle? It's a... Okay, that's the third miracle. What's between the, the storm and the fish? Okay, through the casting of lots, which we would not necessarily was a miracle, they find out who the, the, the source of the storm was. What do they do? They throw him overboard, and then what happens? God calms the storm. Storm, calming the storm, the fish, the most obvious one, and there's one more miracle. The gourd. Okay, so it's interesting. It's not one a chapter, but it averages out to one a chapter. God is doing the miraculous. He's demonstrating his power, and that's significant because uh, it's the power of God that's going to make an impression on Nineveh. It's the power of God that's going to make an impression on the sailors. It's the power of God that goes right over Jonah's head. Isn't it amazing? And he's the prophet. He's the Israelite, the Jew, the, the chosen one, and it's missed on him. Fourth thing that's unique to Jonah is that he is the only minor prophet that is mentioned by Jesus. Now some have said this is very helpful because that of the minor prophets that maybe because of the miracles that the book of Jonah was disputed or questioned by unbelievers. Um, but Jesus validates it. He gives it credibility, credence. Because he uses Jonah, doesn't he? What does he illustrate with Jonah? Okay, and the sign, that's right. There'll be no sign but the sign of Jonah. What's that sign? Three days, in the, three days in the grave. Three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, and so will the Son of Man be in the belly of the earth. All right. So he, he just puts his stamp of authenticity on that. All right. Number five. The book relates the extreme nationalistic spirit of the Jews. This is not, this not an allegory. It's not a made-up story. It's a true, real story. But... Jonah definitely represents more than himself. 
He represents the mentality, the attitude of the entire Jewish nation. There's not... Well, let me ask it this way. Where do you read about the Jews in the Old Testament practicing evangelism? It's forced here. So we'll we'll count Jonah as one, the unwilling missionary. Where else do you see the Jews soul winning? Well, and here's the interesting thing. And you have non-Jews who are enveloped into the Jewish nation, but you ask yourself, how does that occur? How does that occur with Ruth? Does does her mother-in-law, does Naomi say, Ruth, you need to be a follower of God and come and follow? What happens? Ruth initiates it, right? There's provisions in the law of Moses for Gentiles to be practicing Jews. What's that process called? Proselyting. So what happens in that? If you'll read through the old law, if one comes among you and he wants to serve your God, wants to follow your God, then you're, you're to allow him to come in. But how many Jews do you see out going, come into Jerusalem, come and, and worship and, and become, become a Jew? You don't see it anywhere. Now, that's because I'm not saying that harshly against the Jews. The Great Commission came with Jesus. But they were not a, a people that were inclined to be looking out anyway. But here's where God sends Jonah with a great commission to the Gentiles, to the lost. And he shows the mentality that we see certainly showing up in Jesus' day. What happens when Jesus, and, and he's, he's in the synagogue in his hometown. And he says there were all kind of widows in, in Israel in the days of Elisha. But he didn't go to any of them. He went to a Sidonian woman. There were lepers all over Israel. But he only went to Naaman. Those are Gentiles. Do you remember how the people responded to Jesus' illustrations? Even though they were true from the Old Testament. It made them angry to the point that they take him up on the brow of the city and they want to throw him down. Um, They're not inclined to see God's grace for anybody but themselves. It's interesting, uh, Edwin gets to teach the New Testament tomorrow. All three of mine are from the Old Testament. But isn't it interesting how much New Testament there is in the Old Testament? God's, God's got some information for us. So what I want us to do is I want us to, to look, um, and incidentally, we talked about Hebrews and how Jonah's not there. You don't read about Jonah in the, in the heroes, the roll call of faith specifically. There are three folks from the book of Judges. You remember how bad the book of Judges was? It was characterized as the people did what was right in their own eyes. But Gideon makes it. Jephthah makes it. Samson makes it. Jonah doesn't make it. But maybe he's included in the prophets. In Hebrews 11, verse 33 and 34, time doesn't permit us to talk about the prophets. It talks about all the different things that they did. They conquered kingdoms and faith. They, uh, they, they turned back the enemies of God. They shut the mouths of lying, referring to Daniel, of course. So I don't see any of Jonah's specific activity covered in verse 33 and 34. But maybe generally the writer of Hebrews is saying, hey, faith is, is found in all of these different classes of Old Testament heroes. So what I want us to do is to see what we can't learn from Jonah in just the few minutes that we have. First thing I want to notice is Jonah's responsibility. And here's the way I'm I'm breaking down the book, if you will. Uh, Jonah's responsibility is given in verses 1 of chapter 1, 
through verse 3. 1, verse 1 through 3. What is Jonah's responsibility? Go to Nineveh. All right, how does he describe Nineveh? That great... And what other adjective? Wicked city. All right, so in what sense is, is Nineveh a great city? Okay, all right, it's, it's huge. It's capital city, capital city of the emerging world empire, right? It's not going to be a, an empire to the degree that the Babylonians are because Daniels will say there's four world empires that starts with the Babylonians, the Medo-Persians, the Greeks, and the Romans, but they are the first to really spread out their borders and to, to really geographically start taking over a lot of different places after the Egyptians. All right, so you have this great city by way of its population. It's, uh, it's a capital city. Okay, strategically located on, on the river at the Tigris. Okay. That's right. Three three days. So if you go to Jonah 3 and verse 3, it says uh, when he gets his second great commission, which he does obey, he's told to go to this exceedingly great city. It's a three days walk. All right. So there was a fourth century Greek and, 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 and there's other uh, discoveries that have even made it that we believe it's even bigger than what this fourth century Greek uh, archaeologist uh, said, Satinius said that its circumference was 55 square miles. Now, I don't think that's impressive by modern comparisons, but it probably made it the largest city in the world of that time. And uh, they make estimates about how many people were there, conservative estimates of maybe 600,000 people. Uh, That still would make it, I think, less than 100 people per square mile uh, as you do the measurements of the city. It's not densely populated, but it's still greatly populated. And the world population in Jonah's day was, best estimate, about 100 million people. 600,000 people in Nineveh, 100 million people in the world. That means that one out of just over 166 people in the whole world lived in Nineveh. It's a great city. It's a, it's, um, what's the biggest city you've ever been to? You've been to New York City? I don't, how many people are in New York City? 10, 11, in the city itself. I mean, they have all the boroughs and all that. I don't know what's what counts. Huh? Nine million. I was in. I've been in Bangkok a couple of times. Uh, I don't know. I think it's over ten million people. Uh, it's it's massive, huge. There's swarms uh, of people, but ten million out of seven point eight billion is a much smaller percentage than six hundred thousand out of. Uh, out of a hundred million people, God's attention is squarely on Nineveh. It's of value to Him. He cares about all those people that don't know their left hand from their right, as the Book of Jonah ends. And so you you have this great city. It's also great in what it had to offer. Uh, you have its gardens and its palace that are renowned throughout the world. Uh, it had a lot of wealth. They had banks. They made craft beer. They had um, all kinds of festivals. They were a music center in the world. You had, you had all this cosmopolitan influence that was there. They would throw huge banquets every time a palace was uh, inaugurated. Thousands of guests would come. And, and so it's a significant city. How was it wicked? So... 
Mike just mentioned the phrase that's used in the book of Jonah, their, their wickedness has come up before me. You ever heard that language before? Where do we hear that? Sodom and Gomorrah. And what's God's response when the... So he's, he's, he's painting us a really great mental picture. God is saying their wickedness has come up before me. I mean, can you just imagine that piling sin upon sin upon wickedness and depravity and immorality just keeps climbing and climbing and climbing and it's up to God, up to him. And he says in the days of Sodom and Gomorrah, they're done. But Abraham goes to him and says, hey, if there's there's some righteousness found there, and, and, and I don't know how many people were in Sodom and Gomorrah, the number he starts with. To me, seems a relatively small number. And God lets him bargain. Of course, God knows what's going on there, but God, God lets him bargain him down to ten people. God says to Jonah, this is how bad it is, Jonah. This is why I need you to go. Their wickedness has come up to me. And what's the message? What's the message that Jonah has to preach? That's what I've always said. I was looking a little closer to the book of Jonah tonight. Does Jonah ever say repent in the book? You know what his sermon is? It's filled with compassion. Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Let us stand and sing. That's it. That's the sermon, right? What, he doesn't say, hey, if you change, you turn around, you do better, then God will change his mind. you got 40 days. I'm going to go sit on the hill and I'm going to watch you burn. Boy, wouldn't you love to have a preacher like that? Man. Um, he's got a message. God says, this is bad. You need to let him know how bad it is. What does he do with his responsibility? He says, if you want me to go as far that direction as I can, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go as far as I can the other direction. I'm going to, I'm not going to do what you told me to do. I'm going to do the opposite. It's interesting. Assyria is, Nineveh is about 500 miles from his uh, hometown. His hometown is Gath Hefer. It's about three miles northwest of Nazareth, the boyhood home of whom? Jesus. Same neighborhood up in Galilee. He says, I want you to go to the east, 500 miles. What does he do? He gets on the Mediterranean Sea to go to Tarshish, which is in modern day Spain. You know how far that is? 2,000 miles if he makes it. He's not going to make it. So he gets on that ship. He has, first of all, he has to go to Joppa. Joppa is not next door. It's Haifa today in Israel. It's 60 miles southwest. So he's going to jump down there and get on to the port city of Joppa. He's going to get on the Mediterranean Sea and he's going to go just straight out west away from his responsibility. Do we understand Jonah's hesitation? Why is he so hesitant to fulfill that responsibility? God makes it clear. It's unambiguous. He doesn't have to interpret the command. God said, there it is. Here's the harder question. Do we ever find ourselves in the Jonah story? Do we ever find ourselves given a responsibility and despite the clarity of it, the clearness of it, for one reason or another we say, ah, that's okay. It's... Jonah's not in here just to show us what the Jews were like in 700 years before Christ. He's showing us how we can be. I I, I struggle sometimes. 
I don't want to do some of the things God tells me to do. Uh, let's, let's start. Yes, sir. Go ahead, Mike. Yeah. What's the cliche? You make your yeah suit suit you. You know what serves you right. It's what you it's what you were aiming for. You're just going to get what you deserve. So here's a tough one. I mean, hey, speaker included. Great commission. It's really hard, isn't it? It's really it's got complex layers to it. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believes or make disciples of all the nations. Yeah, but you know, there's there's people that are they're they're pretty rough. And they might make me uncomfortable. And if I teach them, if they come to church, then other people will have to sit and see the rough person that I Oh, it's just that's just too much trouble. That's a hassle. And, and they're going to be babes in Christ, and they're going to take one step forward and six steps back. And no, nah, I'll, I'll just not do it. We would never say it that way, but do we ever go through kind of that exercise? It, it gets even tougher. You know, you thought this is VBS. We're going to sing songs and it'll be lighthearted and eat some uh, fish sticks and we'll go home happy. Grow in Christ. God wants us to grow. First, Second Peter is full of statements about that. You know, there's the, the Christian graces in Second Peter one five through eleven. There's the very last a letter word in the in the second letter. Grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. What does that mean? How do you know if you're growing in Christ? I'm, I'm, worship's important. You could sit in in services for thirty years and. Not be a spiritual inch taller than you were when you started. What, what does growth require? Knowledge. I need, to be in, I need to be in the book every day. I need to grow in the grace of Christ. I need to be growing in my imitation of Christ. And that's going to require me to step outside of my comfort zone and do things that I'm not necessarily comfortable in wanting to do. It's unambiguous. Now, he gives us a lot of instruction about how you do the growing, but it, it, it can happen to us that we can say, I see it. No thanks. Or we'll hide so that we don't, you know, don't have, no, nobody, maybe just blend in. Just keep your head down. Don't look. You know, maybe, maybe I won't be asked. Let brotherly love continue. I mean, that's love. That's a, a warm and fuzzy subject, isn't it? Until you begin to study what brotherly love involves, compassion, forgiveness, treating folks honorably, um, demonstrating in your interactions with one another the, the behavior and attitude, the mindset of Christ. It's the mark of disciples, John 13, 34 and 35. Forgive one another. It's, a, it's the mark of a disciple, Colossians 3.13, Ephesians 4.32. Just, in both passages, just as Christ forgave you. You, you know, forgiveness, here's, you ever, you ever been in a Bible class where people are, are, are wanting to debate about what it means to forgive and when you have to forgive? I, I have felt my temperature rise to hear people, what it sounds like, somebody running to Tarshish. When what they don't want to do 
It's be, you know, the two goats on the, the narrow path and they cross each other. One's got to lay down. They don't want to be the laying down goat. They want the other person to lay down. And so we say, yes, Lord, I see what you're saying. No. Man, I feel kind of really weird doing that in front of you in the class. I think, man, I would, I would definitely never want to consciously say that. But I can see Jonah in me sometimes. Or me and Jonah. So we have Jonah's responsibility. And I really kind of dealt with number two a little bit. Jonah's reaping. The reaping is in verses 4 through 17. Jonah discovers that you can't escape God's power. We talked about how rough the Mediterranean Sea can be. Josephus said that these were very dangerous waters. It gave sudden rise to the black north wind. And, and Bricto said the flight of Jonah must stand out as the author intended as and in all of its existential absurdity. Well, I think that, break that down. The, the author lays out the existential absurdity that Jonah could run away from God. You can't be and get away from God. And, and Jonah, I think, in his heart of heart knows that. And he's certainly going to get a demonstration of that. It's the Psalm 139. Where can I go and flee from your presence? It's Proverbs 15.3. The eyes of the Lord are in every place. Beholding the evil and the good. These sailors are the first group to put Jonah to shame. They put him to shame in several ways. How, how do they put Jonah to shame in their interaction with God and him and his interaction with them and God? How do they show him up? Okay. So, so number one, like you're fixing to get to number two. Number one is they care enough about Jonah that they say, what does he say that they need to do? Throw me overboard. What do they start doing? No. Let's get back to shore. Right? Because we don't want to throw this man overboard. What's Jonah do? He gets on the boat. And unlike Jesus, except in one way, what's, what's Jonah doing while the storm's going? I don't think it's the sleep of peace. It's maybe the sleep of, of don't, I don't care. I don't know what it is. But I don't think it's the same mindset of Jesus for sure. And the storm comes when he wakes up. Does he say, oh, no, men, oh, I'm, I'm so, this is terrible. Because he knows, he knows why the storm has, has come. He doesn't care a thing about them, but they do him. Second, they're afraid. He's indifferent. Their fear leads them to reverence. Um, and then they worship and they pray before he ever does. Isn't that amazing? They, they, they offer up an offering. They pray, a, I think, a beautiful prayer, declare, declaring their innocence and, and wanting to seek God's will. Now, Jonah's going to pray too, but he hadn't prayed yet. In all of this, Jonah hasn't, hasn't got, come to God at all. So let's get, well, first of all, an interesting aside. If y'all were in the, uh, I make no apologies for apologetics class that Charlie and I uh, taught in, in the last quarter, uh, we, we talked about how it's amazing. We were talking about in archaeology, how people get so skeptical and they say these things can't happen. It's impossible, you know, for these characters to have ever existed or for these things have ever happened. And as, as the skepticism rises and rises, it, it's, I know God's got a sense of humor because of some of the things that have been uncovered in archaeology. And then you have one piece would be enough. God says, I'll give you about 5,000 pieces. There it is, you know. You've been doubting. And of course, people live and die doubting because they say it couldn't have happened. What, what do people say about the Jonah story to, to, to totally discount the story altogether? 
There's no way that you can live in a fish. Anybody know what happened on June 11th? In, uh, in uh, Cape Cod, Massachusetts? What happened, Cindy? Alright, so we're not in worship. So, you know, pull out your Google and look. His name's Michael Packard. He's 56 years old. He's a lobster diver. He's on his second dive of the morning, right before 8 a.m. He's about 10 feet from the bottom in that cove. And a humpback whale swallows him. Verified by the Coast Guard, by the way, in case you're wondering if he's just had a little bit too much to drink the night before. He was in that fish's mouth for 30 to 40 seconds. He could feel the muscles in the mouth. And he's agitated. He's got on his scuba gear. And he thinks that that uh, is what kind of gets the whale upset. He begins to shake his head, comes to the surface... Spits him out. He says, it's totally dark in there. He said, there's no way I'm getting out of this. I'm going to die. He said, I'll think about it. my two boys, 15, 12 years old. I'm done. How many years did the skeptic say the Bible is a book of fairy tales? There's no way a fish can swallow a man and he could live. Michael Packard, look him up. Last month. I mean, it just happened, you know. All right. Enough of that. Number three, we have Jonah's repentance in chapters 2 and 3. What are the evidences of Jonah's repentance? This is the, the Jonah's best self right here in the heart of the book. How does Jonah show his repentance? Two things. What's first? Okay. I'm not sure there's repentance there yet. Maybe, maybe it's starting. He prays. All right, so there's demonstrations of, of uh, his repentance in his prayer. I'll just break it down for you. This is my breakdown. I'm sure it could be done much better. Uh, his prayer shows confidence in God's ability. Verses 1 through 3. His prayer shows self-awareness of his condition. Verse 4 and 5. His prayer gives God the credit for rescuing him. Verse 6. The Mediterranean Sea is as deep as 14,000 feet in some places. No wonder when he says the depths. He, he might. I don't know how, how close to that he got. And number four, his prayer demonstrates appreciation for blessings and salvation. Verse 7 through 9. He sees the folly of trusting in human reasoning now, his own reasoning. Now, his repentance continues in the next chapter. How does he demonstrate his repentance? He spit out on the shore. God says, Arise, go to Nineveh, and there preach the preaching that I bid you or the, the proclamation that I give you. He goes, he preaches. All right, what are the characteristics of the sermon? We've already kind of dealt with some of that. It's short, right? Is it sweet? Not at all. It's to the point, though. You have to give him that. It's bold. Um, I didn't say this. We talked about the wickedness of Nineveh. I mean, if you want to talk about their portrayal of, of salacious immorality and all that, there's a lot of reliefs and carvings that uh, even in Israel they have uncovered stones. And, and there's they had some very... Um, uh, good artists that were very d- defined in, in their features, but just in the violence of, alone, some of the most violent pictures that have been recovered have, have come from the Assyrians. Um, not to be too graphic, but there's one, there's a, a relief that shows a man's tongue being cut out. It shows slay, uh, men who have been imprisoned who are having to grind their father's bones. There are pictures of people being killed in just horrible ways that I'll, I'll spare you the details of. Jonah spit out of a fish and goes in the city, and for three days he is talking to those people 
One man. I don't know. If he was Samson, he's one man, and you got the most powerful people in the world, or at least they're becoming that. And in the face of those folks, he says, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. I don't know if you'd be tempted to be running as you're, as you're doing that. Yes, sir. Four, maybe? Possibly. How many of you kind of have oceanography as a, a, a hobby? Uh, have you ever, you ever seen uh, like the contents of, of a whale? If, if a whale washes up on shore and they pull it out and they look at it. Have you ever seen what, if stuff's been in the whale for just a little while? He's, he's in there three. Oh, they're bleached out. Because you got, you got gases, enzymes, you know, juices. Some might say, you know, we use PowerPoint today. Was God's PowerPoint to have a bleached out Jonah coming through town? You know, with the, with the drool of the whale still on him going, yet 40 days and then it was going to be destroyed. That might get your attention a little bit. I, but the, the message itself was enough. Some people say that there were some natural disasters and some other things that had happened to them and they had some of their people, and I don't think inspired by God, who were saying this was the judgment of God and, and it would have happened at approximately that time that maybe had them receptive to a message like his. Yep, yep. So as it often is in history, the, the providential timing of certain events um, may have played a part. The appearance of Jonah may have played a part. Um, but there's, there's a wholesale with the sermon and whatever else went around that and God's demonstration. This is all about God's power and God's doing. They immediate, well, however much time is, is passed, they believe, they proclaim a fast. It's from the most powerful one down to the least of them. And they are, they are repenting in sackcloth and they're beseeching God. And it's so powerful and so effective that God relents. He changes his mind. That's, God wants us to camp out on the magnitude and the power of his grace to those who turn to him. Yes, sir. Probably remote, and here's, here's why. Geography, for one thing. Um, you're talking hundreds and hundreds of miles. They don't share a religious heritage. They would have been pagan. So they would not have had those stories like the Jews did. And we're probably talking, um, this is in the 8th century B.C. We're probably talking of oh, a millennium and a half that it happened at Sodom and Gomorrah. So now it was known, to, the Red Sea was known to the Jews for centuries and centuries of time. So I don't discount that. It could have been. Uh, they, they have some inclination that God is willing and able to, to act. They are seeing their imminent doom in a month and, and change. And so it, it moves them to fast, to, to you know, put on sackcloth, put on scratchy burlap in, in their petitions to God to please relent. Put sackcloth on the animals, right. Right. So you think about bearing fruits of repentance. That's what they're doing. They are, they're not just saying, Lord, I'm sorry, I, I, I can't believe we've done this to you. They're going all out. And God, despite the fact that they are the most wicked city on earth, ultimately, at least of their day, but because they're willing to, to turn, yeah, that gives me hope. And I think that's what God's trying to do. You know, we come from varied past, and we've done various things in our past. 
And we can get to the place where we think that we've gone beyond the reach of, of God's grace. And we are if we stay where we are. But God shows us that a people like the Ninevites who just look them up and see what all kind of stuff they did. They turned away from that and God said, and the, the nation's going to last over a century more uh, on the wholesale repentance of those folks. Now, we've got to deal with it because the, the book does. This would be a great place to end the book of Jonah, wouldn't it? They repent. Jonah goes back, you know, but he doesn't leave. He's still there because, again, he's waiting to see the fireworks, the fireworks that don't happen. Um, in chapter 4, we see Jonah's regression. He's impatient with God and he is angry with God. This is the prophet, chapter 4, verse 1, because his will was not God's will. There's a great difference between God and man that's demonstrated in several places. Ezekiel writes during the time of the captivity, and um, it's going to be later in time than than the book of Jonah. And in Ezekiel 18.32, he says, I have no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies. Therefore, repent and live. And and I think about, here is Jonah and Nineveh. Of all the contrasts, what about Jesus in Jerusalem? This is the city that's actively persecuting him. is about to hang him on a cross. He goes up and stands over the city. Matthew 23, 37. What does he he do and what does he say? He cries. That's right. He weeps. He says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who stone the prophets and kill those who were sent unto you, burn and go away. No. How often would I have gathered you together as a hen does her chicks? Big difference. There's, There's... and aren't you thankful? Well, first of all, aren't you thankful that, that that's God's mentality toward us? But be convicted. That's how God wants us to respond to each other. Matthew 6.15. You want him to forgive you? Forgive one another. Jonah, Jonah didn't get that lesson. Jonah also refused to manifest a forgiving spirit. Chapter 4 and verse 1. He enjoyed God's forgiveness, didn't he? Jonah chapter 2. I mean, God spared him. And what does he, I mean, he's, he's just preached the sermon. And he's sitting there waiting for him to just, God to blast them. He doesn't want them to be forgiven. <laughs> yeah, this isn't like this is a faded memory of his past. This has just happened. Um, Jonah limited the omnipotence of the Almighty God of heaven. He was so obsessed with his patriotism that it polluted his service. Um, he can be like those who refuse to acknowledge that the gospel changes people. Do we sometimes go and sit up on the hill and sit and wait instead of thinking maybe this, this person has, has changed? You ever held somebody captive to what they were five years ago, ten years ago? You may not give consideration to the fact that they've grown a whole lot from the young person that you knew or even the person not that long ago who may have done something boneheaded and not righteous, but they've changed. Yes, sir. Yeah. Or, yeah, we'll see how long that lasts. Yeah. I, I, let me, I'm going to wait to see the change, and then, then I'll, I'll believe it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. We're all Jonah. Here, here's the question. Are we the Jonah of chapter 2 and 3? That's what I want to be. Or are we the Jonah of chapter 1 and 4? 
because Jonah takes some huge steps backward, and you think, this is a life-changing event. As far as I know, Jonah and Michael Packer are the only two people in human history that can say, I, I survived a, a, a three, you know, some time in the fish. I mean, for Michael, it was only 40 seconds. Didn't, didn't change him. It was so ingrained. Um, and Jonah was more concerned about a gourd than he was about the souls of men. There's a lesson about making sure we keep our priorities straight. What do we care more about? The things of this earth or the things that God makes more important? Well, there's more we can say about that. By the way, I don't know if this was here. I found a, a, a PowerPoint today um, about some, th- some good things we learned from Jonah. Uh, so if you want a little positivity here, I'll, I'll give you that real quick. The man got results, didn't he? I mean, you got to say that for him. Number two, you have the power of the right message. You get the right message, and it makes all the difference. And we have the, the right message in the gospel. Number three... The importance of prayer in our lives. I'll tell you what. Modify it to your own circumstances. You can pray Jonah's prayer in chapter 2. It's a good prayer. Number four, we are not the arbiters of who can hear. Who needs to hear? Everybody. Let's take it to everybody. Number five, the perfect message is communicated through imperfect men. Boy, I'm thankful for that. And then number six, we must guard our own life and character. You know, what shall it profit a man if he gains the whole world? I get that. What does Paul say? Paul says, I can preach to others and myself be disqualified or become a castaway. What a tragedy that would be. You know, Paul in Philippians chapter 1 says, Some preach Christ out of good motivation, but some out of envy and ambition, selfish ambition, and even want to add affliction to my chains. Is, are people going to be saved at the preaching of people like that? Are they going to be saved? Possibly not. Now, I'm the only, uh, I'm only one of a few preachers in the room here. But the same is true of us as we're proclaimers of God's will. We have the, the message of the gospel that needs to be shared with everybody. How tragic. If we rightly communicate that, and we haven't cared for our own life and character to the extent that we lose our souls. Jonah is about as New Testament as any New Testament book. Uh, in its application, um, the, what, what did I call the, the title of this? Was he was like the he, he worked against hope, or so I can't remember. Unwilling giver of hope, um, but but even despite Jonah's best efforts, God extends hope to the most hopeless people, um, and that's still the message of the gospel today. All right, uh, went long. Sorry, but I promise I won't go long tomorrow. All right, let's. Huh? Okay, good. Let's let's have a word of prayer and we'll close.